On August 18, 1920, Congress ratified the 19th Amendment, legally granting American women the right to vote. Or, more accurately, legally granting some American women the right to vote. Millions were excluded from this pivotal moment in our democracy, particularly women of color. More than 100 years later, many individuals still face barriers to voting, especially transgender Americans. While women make up more than half of the American electorate, they remain underrepresented in government as well as in boardrooms and newsrooms. The underrepresentation of women and LGBTQ individuals in politics and policy journalism, as well as in newsroom leadership, can have a major impact on the news that reaches you. People in those positions influence what stories are told, how the news is covered, and whose voices are elevated. Enter the 19th, the nation's first independent nonprofit newsroom at the intersection of gender, politics, and policy. This organization aims to be a source of news and information for those who have been underserved by and underrepresented in American media, empowering women and LGBTQ people, particularly those from underrepresented communities, with the information, resources, and tools they need to be equal participants in our democracy. Here to talk with us about this new approach to journalism is Emily Ramshaw, the CEO and co-founder of The 19th. Ramshaw previously worked as editor-in-chief of the Texas Tribune, an award-winning local news startup and the largest state house news operation in the nation. In 2020, Ramshaw was named to Fortune's 40 Under 40 list, and she currently serves on the board of the Pulitzer Prize. Emily, welcome to News Over Noise. Hi, thanks so much for having me. I want us to start by talking a little bit about the 19th. Can you tell us a bit more about the project and what inspired its creation? Yeah, sure. So the 19th is the nation's first national nonprofit newsroom at the intersection of gender, politics, and policy. We uh, launched in 2020, really, at the beginning of that uh, crazy election cycle with the aim, really, of lifting up the voices of women and queer people, particularly those from marginalized backgrounds in legacy media. And really, it was a response to, you know, dating as far back as the, the 2016 election. So much we saw in media coverage that really sort of minimized the experiences of women and LGBTQ plus folks that, you know, ask questions like, is she electable? Is she likable? You know, so many questions that we found so sort of fundamentally sexist and in many ways racist. And so we really thought about whether there was a new way we could advance storytelling, advance media in the United States that centered the lived experiences of those who were left at the margins. You worked before at the Texas Tribune, which is another nonprofit. What did you learn there working there that you brought with you to the 19th? The first thing I learned is that the nonprofit business model worked, worked for American media. I mean, I think I grew up in the the era in American media where people were losing their jobs right and left. You know, it's, it's funny. It feels almost quaint compared to how bad it's gotten today. But, you know, I really, um, I spent the early years of my career worried that I was going to get laid off from a regional newspaper that I was going to be, you know, in my mid forties with a kid at home and suddenly be unemployed. And I think the Texas Tribune really felt like a lifeline to me. It it felt like a new way to seek sustainability in American media. And so I learned over my uh, 10 plus years there about the different ways to build a revenue model that felt sustainable in a tough environment, a combination of philanthropy and corporate underwriting and membership. Uh, I learned what it meant to build a really robust live 
live events business. The Texas Tribune really modeled through the Texas Tribune Festival and a lot of its programming ways to engage your readership with the people who represent them and what that could look like. Um, and so I, I really learned a sort of a new way uh, to think about how we sustain media in this country uh, in a way that I, I sort of picked up and ran with when we started the 19th. And just to flip that a little bit, what do you think that the the for-profit sector that is not following that, what is it doing that you don't want to emulate? So what has happened in a lot of for-profit media is an obsession with what I call either clickbait or hate reads or, you know, the most extreme views. So many of those business models are rooted in, you know, the sort of declining advertising dollar in digital media, which means you need basically as many eyeballs as possible on each individual piece of content in order to um, make those advertising dollars worth your while. And I think that incentivizes the wrong things. To me, that incentivizes a sort of echo chamber mentality. It incentivizes headlines that are incendiary or angry or mean. Uh, it incentivizes the you know most outlandish opinions or really rewriting sort of news of the weird. And for us, what we wanted to do was really tell engaging and nuanced stories, uh, stories where there's a lot of gray areas or divergent opinions, stories that made people smarter. And the reality is when you have a traditional advertising model, the wrong types of stories are incentivized. And so that is what a nonprofit model liberates us from because the dollars that come in are people supporting us for the quality of our work, not for how many individual eyeballs are on a story. So more specifically, how does that nonprofit designation impact the types of stories you cover? Is it is it more of a freedom in terms of getting to choose what you think would be valuable or important? Or can you speak a little bit more to that? Yes. I mean, it allows us to really incentivize coverage of things that are undercovered. You know, I mean, so for example, for us, the, the intersection of gender and poverty, you know, maybe not the most read stories on your website, but critically important stories. Um, you know, uh, the intersection of, of gender and criminal justice or gender, race and criminal justice. You know, there are so many important stories. We deeply cover the disability community, for example, you know, which is we, we cover caregiving. These are not uh, uh, beats that uh, major legacy newspapers have necessarily prioritized. And the 19th has been able to give those topics really deep uh, and compelling and, and meaningful airtime because of our nonprofit model, which again, you know, allows us to choose undercovered things to feature and to focus on underserved communities, you know, communities that are not necessarily the priority of for-profit news organizations that are so dependent on advertising. I was noticing that because uh, I was looking through last night and I was noticing a great article about paternity leave. And, and it struck me, this doesn't seem like a natch for a, a women focused. Uh, so the, 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 your, your niche, your, your, your focus on women's issues, how does that help the audience in terms of understanding things like paternity? Yeah, absolutely. So one thing that you might be surprised to know is that close to 50% of our readership is actually male. And we think that's great news. We think that's a great sign because uh, gender issues, women's issues, women's equity, gender and racial equity, it matters to everybody. It doesn't just matter to one uh, segment of the population. And so I think, you know, stories like paternity leave, I mean, if you think about the the value to to women when husbands, when men also can share the duties of, of caregiving and are given the 
space and time to do that. What does that do for women's economic opportunities? What does that do for equity in the workplace? You know, what does that do for, for career advancement? I think, you know, there are a lot of stories that may not necessarily be uh, exactly about women or about queer people, but they serve our audiences. They serve the women and queer people who are reading the 19th journalism. And so we really think about sort of an expansive view. Equity means everybody. And that's how we think about our storytelling. You know, I like that quote, equity means everybody. And thinking about the 19th, you actually have an asterisk next to the 19th. So for those who don't know, can you explain to us what that symbolizes? Yes. So I'll start with what the 19th itself signifies, because you will be stunned at how many people do not know what the 19th Amendment to the Constitution did. And the 19th Amendment uh, made uh, extended the right to vote to everyone, regardless of their sex. Now, what the 19th Amendment didn't do, which is what the asterisk is for, is the 19th Amendment extended to white women. It did not extend to women of color. Um, you know, obviously, there was no debate then around, um, you know, trans rights and, and the identities and ID cards of, you know, different kinds of voters. So the asterisk in our logo is really this representation of the unfinished business of the 19th Amendment. The 19th Amendment took one step. There were still a lot of steps needed to take. And I'd argue we're still very far away from full equity. We see voter suppression, you know, that affects women of color in states across the American South. We see trans voters who struggle to vote with the IDs that that are attached to their um, identities. So I think the asterisk to us really points to these intersections and areas in which the 19th Amendment actually did not go far enough. So I was thinking a little bit about your and your mission statement. You say serving the public interest is a big is a big concern of yours, and and I was thinking about this in relation to the reframing of the stories that you do to basically to cover your mission, right? And so, just as an example to think with, how do you think that your focus on topics like the economy makes those better stories for everybody? Mm-hmm, absolutely. I mean, I think one of the very first stories we wrote, actually the very first day of the 19th in operation, so we launched during the pandemic and we wrote a story about the pandemic's she-session, right, which is this recession that hit women so much harder than it hit men. I mean, and for us, you know, that's a, that is a story that affects more than 50% of the American population. This isn't a niche women's issue, right? Like, you know, the, the economy, there is so much we can learn from the caregiving economy. The, we write a lot about long-term care and elder care and how so much of that work falls to women. We wrote about, you know, during the pandemic, how hard hit the hospitality industry was, which overwhelmingly affected women uh, compared to men. There are so many ways in which the economy is already gendered. And we think those kinds of stories are so important to tell. And I think, you know, even going beyond the economy, there are so many areas, um, you know, uh, gender and climate is a priority for us. I think a lot of people might not think that climate is necessarily a gendered issue. Um, The majority of climate refugees are women. Uh, When you think about Issues like extreme heat, you know, people who can get pregnant are affected by extreme heat in ways that that people who aren't pregnant are not. There are in virtually every arena, it became so obvious that the 19th was necessary because whether it's you know, public education and disparities in achievement between girls and boys or higher education and the ways that we see women enrolling at higher numbers now than men. In so many cases, women are either disproportionately affected or there is an outsized impact. And there are so many critical stories to tell at those junctures. Yeah, I agree. And, and one of the things that I, I find uh, really helpful with it is that 
the ways that the ways that the mainstream media or whatever one wants to call it, sort of the normal mode, modus operandi of, of journalism, it often frames stories in exactly the same way. So it's just all that changes are the details of it. And I think one of the, the salutary things about reframing stories in this way is that it brings them to life again and helps people understand the, the fuller context of them as, as opposed to just, you know, is the Dow Jones up or, or down on a given day? Yeah. And I think that's such an important point because, you know, we, there is so much of this conversation in American media right now around objectivity. You know, is it the responsibility of the news to be objective? And my question to that is like, you know, whose view of objectivity? Because for most of American history, the, the stories that have existed in, in media have been largely told through the lens of men and overwhelmingly white men, right? I mean, until a couple of years ago, you know, still 70% of politics and policy editors were men, the overwhelming majority were white men. And so, you know, their quote unquote objective lens, right? They're the ones deciding what's news and what isn't news. Um, you know, whether something plays on the front page or the home page, who's quoted in those stories, what kind of sources are represented, uh, and, you know, how we decide whether something is, you know, worthy of going viral. I mean, we had a story yesterday at the 19th about um, how long it has taken for scientists to determine what hormone causes morning sickness. You know, like for us, that is huge national news. That is global news for any woman, for any person who's ever been pregnant and knows the sort of, you know, how horrific it is to feel terribly ill for so much of your pregnancy. You know, that's a story that might not play on the front page in a news organization that's overwhelmingly led by men. But for us, that's major national news. And so I think thinking about that reframing again, you know, uh, women and queer people make up more than 50% of the American population. And I think their stories ought to be centered and framed in different ways. You know, objectivity is something that we've discussed actually quite a bit on the podcast. And in thinking about kind of this idea of giving your audience a fuller context, do you have a certain kind of mindset or approach you take to objectivity with the news stories from the 19th? We do. We call ourselves an independent nonprofit newsroom. That's a lowercase I independent. That's not a political party independent. And what that means for us is like we cover everybody without fear or favor, but we're also not afraid to say that there are things that we stand for and we stand for gender equity. We stand for human rights. We stand for racial equity. Our stories are rooted in science and evidence and fact. You know, we don't play the both sides game if one side is spewing misinformation or hate. And, and you know, we don't think those things are mutually exclusive, right? Like we really do believe that you can, that our version of objectivity is, you know, allowing our journalists to bring their full lived experiences to the, to the work so that the product that's out there in the world, so that our media feels more diverse and representative. And so, you know, I think we're... You've seen more and more news organizations now sort of getting away from this word nonpartisan and moving into this word independent. Even the New York Times now uses independence as its mantra. And I think we feel like there's great value in saying we're not afraid to stand for something that doesn't mean we're partisan or putting a thumb on the scale. It just means that we're human beings. It's interesting that you say that, you know, what you talk about and your, your values and what, which seem to to change. And I was just wondering, like, when I was watching the Breaking the News, which is uh, for all of our listeners out there, it's a great doc about the, the 19th getting stood up during the pandemic. And one of the sections of it is as a place where you all as an organization struggled with this in terms of who gets to count as women, right? So a traditional thing in feminism is that there was a moment when it was, feminism was kind of just white women, right? And they had to kind of broaden the, the tent. And it was interesting to watch you 
all struggle through that, right? And to kind of come to terms. So are there other issues that you, that when you have your kind of group meetings and kind of think about the organization, where its direction is, do you, do you, do you work through these issues constantly? Absolutely. I mean, I think one really critical piece of the 19's mission and brand is that we have those difficult conversations and we're open to an evolution. I mean, as an example, you noted this in the documentary, you know, when we founded the 19th, we were thinking women, politics and policy. And then we hired extraordinary uh, queer, you know, trans and non-binary colleagues who immediately said, wait a second, like we feel misgendered by this framing of the 19th. And also, you know, the the same way that women are crushed by the power of the patriarchy, you know, queer people are, are feeling that crush too. And so we intentionally expanded our mission to say we don't just serve women. We are here to serve women and members of LGBTQ plus communities. We made, I'd say, a similar pivot in our, our staff conversation after January 6th. When we launched, we had used the terminology nonpartisan. And after January 6th, we felt like the term nonpartisan was sort of co-opted to mean both sidesism. And we felt like that was a moment in history where our uh, our democracy was on the line and you know you couldn't um you couldn't sit on the sidelines. And so we changed our framing to say independent instead of to say nonpartisan, because, you know, we weren't going to, we were no longer going to platform people who uh, questioned, you know, whether our election, uh, whether the election was stolen or rigged or, you know, like outlandish, um, completely uh, preposterous claims. Um, And so I think we've had moments like that over the course of the 19th. I think what's really significant is that you know, I think news organizations need to listen to their staff. They need to challenge their own identities and their lived experiences. I mean, I'm a I'm a white woman of privilege, a straight white woman of privilege running a news organization that is, you know, 60% BIPOC, that is 40% queer identifying, um, that has 19% people living with disabilities. I don't know best. My team knows best. And I really value their voices and their lived experiences and, and how we all do this work communally. You know, I think that's a, a really refreshing perspective and something that I've noticed throughout our conversation so far with you already. With, what I think it's been 15 minutes is there seems to be this focus you have on transparency and really providing fuller context to the stories and your approach to news. And I noticed in your mission statement that you, you it says at the 19th, we're committed to publishing journalism that you can trust throughout the critical moments that shape our democracy and our lives. And so I'm wondering what are some of those additional ways that you're working, that the 19th newsroom is working to cultivate trust? Absolutely. One of the things we think about a lot with trust is debunking mis and disinformation, which feels critically important for our audiences, particularly the people of color who we serve. So we think about that a lot. We do a lot of journalism that is, I would describe as sort of explainers or, you know, it's not super complex, but it's news you can use. It's uh, how to find out if you qualify for the child tax credit, for example, or um, how to get baby formula, you know, when there are shortages in your particular state. We've done journalism on diaper poverty in the Ozarks that led to enormous contributions and donations to women who were experiencing diaper poverty, which I didn't even know that was a term. That was a thing. And it's, I mean, that's the most horrific, you know, to be unable to provide diapers for your baby. It's just, it's next level. And so I think we think about that a lot. We also really ask our audiences what they need. We do a lot of 
you know, I think as we've seen sort of pivots away from people just directly visiting news websites in favor of other platforms or social media, you know, we use Instagram. In some cases, we tell stories just on Instagram instead of on our website because we have such robust audiences there. We can almost do it, you know, completely in a series of cards um, that let them engage with that. You know, I think we're, we're really committed to meeting our audiences where they are, to letting them drive, you know, tell us, respond to this call out, tell us what you're looking for, what questions you have, how we can help serve you. And I think really being transparent about the fact that like, they're the customers, they're the guides, they're the people we're trying to serve. How do we serve them and and serve them most equitably? One other piece I wanted to just mention was, you know, you, you mentioned transparency. And I think that is one other thing I really learned from the Texas Tribune, which was amazing about saying, here are the people who are paying our bills. Here are the people who are supporting this organization. Here's how you know whether someone in this story is also supporting the Texas Tribune. We do that at the 19th. We list all of our donors and supporters on our website. If anyone is mentioned in a story, named in a story, we disclose that in the story. It is really, really critically important to us to say, we're showing you the readers literally everything, any place you might perceive that there could be a conflict of interest or a thumb on the scale. We feel like the best antidote to those kinds of questions is complete and utter transparency. I think that I think that's right. Uh, you're mentioning something that is sounds a lot like what uh, some people call the citizen's agenda model for journalism, right? Where you ask people, what are the stories that, what are the problems that you want uh, to help in solving, right? And uh, would, is there an example that you could give? I mean, the, it sounds like the diaper one was was an example. Was there another another example of a recent story that that okay. came from listening to your audiences and kind of serving them and helping them solve things? Well, here's here's one example. You know, recently one of our reporters, Shafali Luthra, got a tip out of the state of Arizona that there was about to be a major abortion case coming down in in Arizona, and that the judge overseeing that case is someone who had written previously that abortion was genocide, had a very long history of opposing publicly opposing abortion uh, in the state of Arizona. Shafali wrote a really important story for the 19th about this this situation and about how this judge was refusing to recuse himself from the case. That story was co-published by uh, news organizations on the ground in Arizona through the 19th's free republishing model. The story got so much attention on the ground that Shafali was then asked to go on local media, local radio to talk about this particular case. There became such a furor that the judge was eventually forced to recuse himself from this case. And I use that as an example of something that would not have happened if not for the 19th listening to its audience, if not for a reporter diving into this issue, if not for our free republishing model that lets local news organizations across the country republish the 19th journalism. And then there was the follow-up and actual action was taken. And so I think about that as just, that just happened last about last week. And so that's a maybe more modern example of the, the 19th effect in both national and local journalism. Just a reminder, this is News Over Noise. I'm Leah Dachis. And I'm Matt Jordan. We're talking with Emily Ramshaw, the CEO and co-founder of The 19th, the nation's first independent nonprofit newsroom at the intersection of gender, politics, and policy. You know, as someone who's, I'm, I'm kind of a data geek, I'm really interested in audience analytics and just kind of, I'm curious, how how does The 19th go about like listening or or asking those questions of their audience? Is it using data metrics or more qualitative work? 
Yes. Uh, so a couple of different ways. The first is we run an annual audience survey, which is a lot of work. Um, you know, we even do things like, you know, sometimes offer gift cards for participation, right? You know, you really have to um, be really intentional. And every single year we do an audience survey where we try to get a ton of results from our existing readers. So we do that. But there's also the sort of qualitative, which is we do these audience callouts. We create a form, um, you know, tell us about your experience with student loans and how the pullbacks of, you know, loan forgiveness are going to affect you. Or talk to us about your, you know, experience accessing baby formula during this shortage. We do a lot of that across social media and get people who literally either respond to our callouts or respond, you know, hit reply to an email newsletter just telling us with, uh, about their experiences. So I think. It's it's a combination of all of that. We are a very data-driven organization. We have an extraordinary audience team and, and you know, a person who runs analytics for us. We do make a lot of decisions based on what we know about our audiences. But we also lean into the qualitative, which is, you know, how we get some of our best story ideas. So this this is kind of partially a kind of a to that, which is, I was going to, you, you run a news organization, which is different from being on the ground and whatnot. And what are the challenges do you think in today's media ecosystem for standing up a, a new brand and, and building brand awareness and getting new audiences? What are some of the challenges uh, in getting the word out? Yeah. I mean, well, the, the first are sort of, I would say, or I would point to big challenges that all media is facing right now. And that is really the way that platforms are evolving. You know, I think the, <laughs> you see that the social media platforms, whether it's Twitter, now X, Facebook, Instagram, in many cases, these platforms have moved away from prioritizing news. They're actually trying to get out of the business. They don't want to be the arbiters of what's true and what isn't. And so as a result, they have basically been using their algorithms to back away from news entirely. And so what that means is that our historical way of reaching audience, you know, many of whom found us on Facebook or found us on Twitter, those numbers have declined dramatically. You know, with the evolution of AI, for example, you know, pretty soon, if not already, people are going to be asking for the information they're looking for and getting those results written to them in a paragraph instead of getting a list of search results. And those list of search results, by the way, are how most news organizations historically have had people find them through Google search or whatever search platform you use. Um, so there has been this sort of, and then of course, then we're also dealing with the sort of over-serving, you know, people who are exhausted by the news cycle. The news cycle is painful. It's hard. You know, they are retreating into softer topics. And so I think all of these things combined means that news organizations across the board have seen declining digital traffic and have had to sort of rethink how they serve people, how they find their audiences. So for us, that's a combination of you know, deprioritizing views on our website in lieu of finding people on Apple News or Samsung News, you know, republishing with all the platforms, republishing across as many local news organizations as we can, where people still really do trust their local news organization. And then using, you know, Instagram, the way I was talking about our social media platforms or, you know, TikTok to tell stories in, you know, complete ways in these different sort of capsule environments. So I think our responsibility as news organizations right now is to serve our users wherever they may be. Again, I think that's an area where nonprofit newsrooms actually have a leg up because we aren't as dependent on the digital advertising traffic that so many for-profits are. So that's one big challenge, I'd say, which is just news delivery is changing. 
when, for the nonprofits, the other big challenge is sustainability, financial sustainability. And I think, you know, as the CEO, I spend a ton of my time, 70% of my time fundraising. And I think you see more and more nonprofit newsrooms in this space, you know, many of whom are competing for the same traditional philanthropic dollars. I think we also struggle to find and convince new funders that journalism is something worth investing in, that if you care about democracy or if you care about LGBTQ rights or if you care about women's rights, that journalism is also something you ought to care about. And I think that's where I see my responsibility being greatest. Well, so let me start with something I've noticed as a queer woman is that I often had to hunt around for news stories that cover topics of relevance to me. And you've kind of spoken to how you've been, how the 19th really works to elevate the voices of the underserved and the underrepresented. And so I've gotten quite accustomed to kind of searching for niche outlets. And so I'm wondering with the 19th, when you were conceptualizing this, this newsroom, was was there that specific niche you were trying to fill and kind of wanting to stay in that arena? Or is the goal to eventually become part more of like the, quote, mainstream media discourse? Mm-hmm. That's a good question. I mean, I think, look, I, I still think the greatest opportunities right now are for niche publications. You know, we're not huge. We, we can't be all things to everyone. We are a staff of, you know, not even 60. Um, when you compare that to the, you know, thousands upon thousands of employees, places like the New York Times, you know, we don't have the resources to do everything. And so I think for us, you know, we've been trying to determine, you know, how can we use our limited resources to make the most outside impact. And, you know, speaking about our coverage of LGBTQ plus communities in particular, you know, we saw an erosion of the queer press nationally. We saw a gap there. We saw a gap that our reporters were particularly suited to serve. And our reporting on queer communities has has done extraordinarily well from the standpoint of its impact and its reach. And so I think for us at the 19th, as we think about our own growth, as we think about the communities that we serve, it will be where we feel like we're best suited to make an outsized impact. Are there any things that, that for example, I just noticed that the Jezebel just you know, hung is is going out of business or wherever you're. You know, are there are there concerns that you have uh, given what's happening in that space, or do you see growth potential? You know, as things kind of shrink. Yeah, I mean, so first of all, the good news is that while Jezebel immediately got shuttered, it has just been purchased and reopened. So it does. There's new, Jezebel as of I think two weeks ago has a new lease on life, which is amazing news. I am very troubled by the for-profit media landscape, the for the quote unquote feminist press. I mean, I think you've seen, you know, the, the Washington Post had a vertical called the Lily and the Lily um, was shuttered or was folded into other coverage. The New York Times used to have a gender uh, vertical, a gender newsletter that has since been pulled back. You saw what happened to Jezebel. They had trouble finding a buyer. I think that's chilling from my standpoint, because it means that in the for-profit media space, the shareholders have decided that uh, that feminist media doesn't matter or that feminist media is not profitable. Even though we know some of these platforms actually were making money, they just were not profitable enough. And so again, for me, that's why nonprofit is the answer is if the for-profit media gods are not ever going to decide 
that covering marginalized communities is profitable. And so let's lean into it being a public service. Let's lean into it being nonprofit. And and I think you've seen that work for us, but it's also working for Capital B, for example, the nonprofit news organization that aims to serve Black America or all kinds of other, you know, um, startup nonprofit newsrooms around the country that are trying to do uh, what for-profit shareholders told them wasn't possible to do. Have you worked with any of them? I was, I was, you know, once upon a time, there was uh, this thing called the Associated Press, and it was a bunch of people getting together and saying, we can help each other. Uh, Has there been conversation among people who are in positions like yours at other nonprofits to create kind of associations that would help fill a lot of news gaps? Mm -hmm. There are. So the first answer is yes, we collaborate all the time. In fact, we're all very close. The nonprofit newsrooms frequently cross-publish each other's work. We are in conversation all the time. I mean, even the Associated Press, for example, we just co-hosted a gender and climate event in Phoenix with the Associated Press, the 19th did. So we we all are working very collaboratively. Uh, and there are organizations, you know, the, Insti- the Institute for Nonprofit News is a sort of, you know, a parent organization that a lot of us are, are members of. There are conferences throughout the year where we all come together. So yes, I mean, I'd say the nonprofit news space is very robust, is increasing robust. You know, there are now hundreds of nonprofit newsrooms, big and small across the United States. I think the big overarching challenge facing so many of us is, again, this question of sustainability and making sure we're not competing for the same set of dollars, but that there is enough to go around. And I think, you know, in so many ways, we have to convince the American public that like, you know, the same way the ballet and the symphony are worth supporting, nonprofit media in your community is worth supporting. And it's it's vital to your culture and it's it's vital to your democracy. And I think that's still the sort of uphill climb that we we face. I don't want to say that this is likely an uphill climb you may also experience, but I guess given the the topics, the the stories focusing on gender, focusing on the LGBTQ plus community. As someone who does work in that area as well, I understand that that's really a space that's that can be very vulnerable, that's open to receiving negative feedback, that's, you know, receiving extremist opinions. And I'm wondering, is is there a way that you talk about social backlash or trolling within the newsroom that kind of helps to protect journalists from that neg- potential negative reception? Well, first of all, you like really hit the nail on the head. We face the kinds of attacks that I never experienced in 10 years at the Texas Tribune, you know, and I, I mean, I thought the trolling was bad there. This is next level trolling, the issues that we cover and the reporters who are on our team experience so much. We've had to work really hard as an organization and have had to devote substantial resources to expanding the security and uh, protection mechanisms for folks on our team. People on our team have received credible death threats. They've been been called out by Tucker Carlson and then his minions have come after, you know, our, our journalists. They've faced a whole lot and we have systems in place. We, first of all, we also have, we have technology in place that aims to help us protect our teams, but trolling, you know, we basically, we have put uh, scenarios in place where we effectively insist that those reporters get offline and lock down their accounts while we create shifts of other team members who work to report the trolls who are coming after them. I mean, it's a, it it can be a full-time all hands on deck situation when one of these attacks occurs. We've also had, you know, something called DDoS attacks 
We've had efforts, you know, out around certain of our abortion stories, for example, uh, to flood our site with traffic to the point where it knocks our site offline. Um, we've had those kinds of really vir- virulent attacks on our site. And so we've had to, we have an extraordinary technology team that has um, really been amazing at, at protecting us and setting up our defenses. But it's, I, I mean, when you think about this environment, the environment that we operate in, you know, it's not, again, just about doing the journalism or raising the money to support it. We also have to think about the safety and security of our team. After seeing the documentary that I saw, I I started subscribing to the newsletter, which I found really helpful, right? And I was wondering if as a news org, if you try to think about ways to sustain stories, right? Which is to say that one of my kind of longstanding criticisms of our media landscapes is it's very reactive, right? And that we're not good at sustaining conversations. And we all know that in a democracy, really only things only get fixed when you can sustain a conversation. So are there strategies that you use and topics that you choose? to try to sustain conversations on things? Yes, I mean, absolutely. I think the two best examples probably would be voting rights and reproductive health, which are, you know, areas where you basically continue to beat the drum. You know, we have followed in reproductive health, we've followed the constitutional amendments that are on the ballot in, you know, key states across the country. We have reporters and journalists in 20 plus states right now, despite being a really tiny team, we're a really distributed team. And that has allowed us to really be able to tell these stories all across the country. So you continue to sort of feel that drumbeat as it reverberates across the country. We've done a lot of work around voting rights, particularly across the American South. We've got reporters in key states. We run a fellowship program that is for past attendees of historically black colleges and universities that is done in partnership with uh, Howard Center for Journalism and Democracy, where we've been able to tell a lot of those stories that, that uh, particularly serve our, our Black audiences and those experiencing a lot of voter suppression in this country. And then we pair all of these stories with live events and programming in key communities where we're able to, you know, uh, not just uh, tell the stories, but sort of showcase the characters in those stories, the issues that we're covering, bring new audiences into the journalism. You know, it's it's been really compelling for us to have that sort of one-two punch of both the journalism and the live engagement that's really helped us sort of drive those topics home. You know, thinking about kind of bringing new audiences in, something that we've chatted about and kind of with our news literacy initiative is we're really looking for ways to engage younger generations. We know that they tend to be more politically disengaged or apathetic. And I'm wondering, do you have a a strategy or kind of a, a goal with how to engage younger generations, how to get them involved in this conversation? One of the things that we've done, well, first of all, social media, obviously telling stories on new platforms. I mean, if you, you know, if you can find your way onto TikTok in some way, shape or form and tell complete stories there, you're many steps ahead. But I think the other thing we do with our live events is that we often bring, say, you know, a performing artist or a celebrity of some sort, someone who is a draw uh, to younger audiences, to more diverse audiences who will maybe get them in the door. And then in the process of that, they learn about the 19th and then they stick around they sign up for our newsletters and they start engaging with the journalism. I mean, one example of this is in September, we had an an event on Latinx storytelling and really owning your own story and your own narrative. And Eva Longoria headlined that event for us, which was in Los Angeles. And it was an incredible crowd. The turnout was amazing. People stuck around. We had a performing artist, a musician. Um, You know, there was so much mingling afterward. So many people were engaged. And I think for us, Many of those people were first timers to the 19th. And once you have them in the door, they're a part of your community. 
And have you moved into kind of multimedia storytelling? I mean, you, uh, like, say, for instance, have you hired a, a vertical storyteller for creating content for TikTok or anything like that? You know, we haven't yet, although I'd say it's something that we're talking about a lot. We're still, um, from a sustainability standpoint, we're still trying to make sure we do and can afford the journalism, the, the traditional journalism as best we can. But I think we now have, uh, on our events team, we have, uh, you know, an incredible video producer who's been doing a lot of work to create sort of social nuggets out of our live events that have done really well across our platforms. We do things on Instagram like 19 Minutes with the 19th, where we have live conversations or interviews. And so I, I'd, think, I'd say you're going to continue to see us moving more into that space and um, also into the audio space, more details on that to come. But uh, we're we're trying to think across platforms and think about the ways we can best engage our audiences. You know, you may have you may have already kind of answered my next question, but it, it's. So I subscribe to the newsletter and I love going on your website. I'm very passionate about the work that you do. And so I'm just excited to hear more about what's next. Like, what do you hope for, for the future of the 19th in terms of, is it, is it finding ways to get more on social media? Is it breaking into new sectors of coverage or new beats? I'd love to hear more. You know, we are really singularly focused on 2024, which feels seismic for so many reasons, but also seismic for our audiences. And, and so I think we are, we're trying to take it one year at a time. We're going to be undergoing a, our first strategic planning process. We're almost four years old. And so it is now time. Our initial sort of three-year plan has run its course. It's, you know, you start a three-year plan and then it looks nothing like what you thought it was going to look like. And that's the case for us too. But we really are, I think, sort of singularly focused on two things in the next year. And that is sort of devising what the next three to four years of the 19th are going to look like. And that means, you know, revising what our business model looks like, but also what our delivery model looks like. All those things I was talking about with where we serve our audiences. And then the second piece is election storytelling. I mean, we are a political newsroom. You know, the 2024 election is a be all end all for us. And so given the things that we cover, you know, voting rights being central to our name and our mission and our brand, reproductive health, we know being, you know, essential to the last two elections. And, you know, I think uh, lots of questions about how big of a role the sort of women's health vote will play in the 2024 election. And then also just, you know, the attack on LGBTQ rights in this country, which has really animated the right and been a, a, a you know real point of defense for the left. So I think that's something we're also deeply covering across the country. Those are the big things on the horizon for us. I noticed in your mission statement, which is something that I think is wonderful, which is that you say you don't want to do horse race coverage. So what is your strategy as you move into covering the election where the stakes are going to be huge, where the emotions are going to be too? How do you avoid doing horse race coverage as you negotiate the next, next, next year. Yeah. The answer to that is pretty simple. And that is we focus on the voters, not the candidates. You know, I think we, we avoid the so-and-so's up in the polls or, you know, so-and-so said this about their opponent this week. And we really focus on listening to voters and writing stories about what they're thinking, uh, how they're feeling. I mean, one pretty great example of this is actually the 2022 election. Basically every national media outlet in the country was predicting a red wave saying over and over again, this is what the polling shows. Uh, 
you know, people don't care about abortion. You know, it's the economy, it's the economy. And the 19th, I think we wrote something like 68 stories ahead of the, ahead of the 2022 midterms. And then not a single one of those stories did we predict a red wave because we were talking to women and queer people on the ground who were saying over and over again, actually abortion really matters. Boy, I'm super pissed off. This is the thing I'm taking with me to the ballot box. And surprise, surprise, there was not a red wave. And it turned out that all these national news organizations were, had to write these stories, retracing their steps and saying, actually, like, turns out, you know, voting on reproductive health really did matter in the 2022 election. And, and we got that story right because we weren't focused on the candidates, because we were actually on the ground talking to voters. And I think that's something that gets lost by a lot of legacy news organizations. And it's something that we are really committed to. You know, something I think that's interesting, and I and I I don't know, maybe you do this intentionally, is that I've noticed in how you're talking about the way that your stories are created, it seems that there's natural elements of news literacy embedded. So thinking about how you have a story where you're talking to people who are on the ground is almost kind of in a way demonstrating what it looks like to actually go to the source and what readers can be doing. Is there any sort of like actual strategy to that or ways that you're really embedding news literacy into your coverage? You know, it's interesting because I don't necessarily think it's intentional, but I think one thing we've learned is that people trust the news more when they see themselves reflected in it or when they see people they know or people who look like them. And I think that's something that we've been really, that piece we have been really intentional about is making sure that people who are not traditionally reflected in the media see themselves reflected. And I think you can see that, again, not just in the sort of who's quoted in our stories, but the photography that illustrates those stories, the illustrations, the the data tools that we build. And so I think the amazing side effect of really focusing on people who are under-reflected in legacy media is that when those people see themselves or people who look like them reflected, they trust us more. And I think that's something that the national media writ large should think really long and hard about. I mean, I'm I'm on the advisory board for the News Literacy Project, which is an organization that I really believe in that does a, a whole lot of work uh, nationally to help people understand you know, what's factual and what isn't and sources that they should trust. Um, and so I spend a lot of time thinking about this, but I do think the the simplest tactic is that your news ought to really reflect the people you're seeking to serve. Yeah. Show your work. You know, that's, yeah, exactly. it's, it's a basic thing. Um, line in the book. Yeah. yeah. Well, one thing I can say to our audience is, is it is a great way to see good journalism by checking out the 19th, subscribing to the newsletter. You will see good journalism in action. And Emily, I'd like to thank you so much for, for joining us today. Well, thank you so much for having me. This has been really a great conversation. Wow, I feel like I just learned so much talking with Emily. You know, during our conversations, I'm always jotting down notes of things to remember, and I just have so many fantastic quotes that I want to remember. Matt, what was uh, one of your takeaways from today? Um, first, it's it's great to hear somebody who's worked with some really great news organizations who knows the ground really well talk about t- talk about these things. And uh, for me, it's like the takeaway is. You learn about good journalism by reading good journalism. So, uh, for all those in the, in the audience, you know, just sign up for the newsletter. It's a it's a good thing to to get your start uh, uh, seeing news uh, that is portrayed in a, that is framed in a different way. And you? Um, yeah. So I I'm you know I'm looking at my my quotes and one that I just feel like I, I want to star is this, you know, Emily kind of ended with people trust the news more when they see themselves in it. And as someone who studies media 
equity, diversity, and representation that's so important that when we see ourselves reflected in the news, we're going to, we tend to trust it. You know, we tend to maybe become even more involved in thinking about our role in the political process. And so I think that's so important for journalists and kind of newsrooms more broadly to be thinking about how can we be including underserved and underrepresented voices and putting them, bringing them to the table. That's it for this episode of News Over Noise. Our guest was Emily Ramshaw, the CEO and co-founder of the nonprofit newsroom, The 19th. To learn more, visit newsovernoise.org. I'm Leah Datris. And I'm Matt Jordan. Until next time, stay well and well-informed. News Over Noise is produced by the Penn State Donald P. Belisario College of Communications and WPSU. This program has been funded by the Office of the Executive Vice President and Provost at Penn State and is part of the Penn State News Literacy Initiative. 